Welcome to a special edition of Museum Chat Live. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. We are thrilled to bring our hit virtual museum lecture series to the podcast. Now, with over 30 lectures on YouTube, we're happy to bring the lecture audio to the podcast format so that more of you can enjoy these fascinating stories and join in on the historical adventures. Coming up this winter, we'll release the audio for lectures on topics such as the history of the largest cemetery here in Niagara, Ontario's racially segregated schools, the Third Welling Canal, and much more. More lectures are headed your way this winter over on YouTube. You can join in live or catch the lectures on our playlist afterwards. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us at St. Catherine's Museum so you don't miss any of the fun. For more information on the lecture series, the impressive guest list, and the lecture topics, please visit stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, our podcasts, and our programs, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Today's podcast features a lecture by a very special guest. We were thrilled to welcome Natasha Henry, PhD candidate at York University and president of the Ontario Black History Society. Natasha's lecture on racially segregated schools in Ontario was fascinating, and we really think that you'll enjoy it. This lecture was originally produced on October 13th, 2020. Oh, yes, that's right. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I appreciate the invitation to be here with you this evening um, to share a little bit of uh, some of my research and interest in the experiences of um, Black Canadians, particularly Black children and uh, Black families as it relates to public education. So this evening, I'm going to be speaking with you Um, to share some history of Ontario's racially segregated schools. And um, in my discussion, I am going to approach this in somewhat of a chronological order um, as a way to hopefully carry us through a little bit into um, the 21st century in, uh, in my efforts to establish connections between the past and the present. One of the earlier schools that were, uh, was founded in uh, Upper Canada, what we now call Ontario, was in Niagara-on-the-Lake. And uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake was um, one of the first places of Black settlements in colonial Ontario going back to the 1780s. Uh, those who were um, in this area, the majority were first enslaved uh, with a small number of freed men who were black loyalists. And then increasingly because of the proximity to the border, it was an entry point for freedom seekers entering into the province from the United States. 
One of the first schools was held at the St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, and it was a mission school established for Black children in the old Kirk Hall. And it was in function until around 1843, um, having started around 1805. Uh, closer to um, the 1840s, um, the teacher at that time was a black man by the name of Herbert Holmes. He was also a Baptist minister and a former student, uh, Marianne Gillian, remembers attending this school that was full of black children. It was likely a mission type school for black children run and funded by the church um, in response to uh, segregated schooling. Holmes helped to organize uh, a petition on behalf of the black community to stop the extradition of Solomon Mosby. And Solomon, and unfortunately, uh, Mr. Holmes was killed in what is known as the famous Mosby affair in 1837. And so in opening with that, um, this example, uh, is to illustrate that education was something that was central to black life um, from as early as possible going, as I said, into, through the early 1800s. Here is a great illustration that I like to share. This is a, of a district map, a school map uh, in 1842. And this is representing Colchester in Essex County, which is not too far from uh, Windsor. And what we, I noticed, what I'd like to share about this particular map is that 1842 was a mere six years after the abolition of enslavement uh, in British colonies, most British colonies, including here in Canada. And what is very striking about this map is that we see that the prevailing ideas of black people that undergirded enslavement did not disappear six years later. And so despite the legal prohibition against discrimination in education um, based on religion, a color distinction or race, um, and increasing anti-slavery sentiments that many white Ontarians oppose the settlement of black people in or near their communities and refuse them entries into common or public schools. And this map, um, is, as I said, you can see here, SS number six, school section number six, was the appointed Negro school that Black families would have had to attend regardless of where they lived um, in this particular region. The following year in 1843, we see that through this particular uh, communication from the colored people of Hamilton, that they were facing um, a number of challenges related to racism in society, but particularly as it relates to public education. And this um, original document is from the archives of Ontario. And in this letter, the community um, they wrote uh, expressing that they are paying their taxes, but they are denied access to public schools. They also described um, how they were mistreated, um, not only um, by school officials, but also by uh, white residents being called the N-word in the streets, 
um, being uh, physically assaulted at times. And so they wrote this letter to the Governor General, Sir Charles Metcalf. And um, in response, Metcalf asked the Assistant Superintendent of Education to intervene. Um, schools in Hamilton were desegregated in some sense, but Black children were still required to sit on separate benches in many of Hamilton's common schools and white opposition to integration remained relatively strong throughout um, past the mid 1850s. And so I will talk a little bit more um, as I uh, wrap up my, my talk about what segregation looks like because it did look differently in different spaces. And so as you recall, I mentioned that in Hamilton, although they said that they would officially desegregate schools, that within the school buildings itself, that some black children were, were relegated to sitting in separate benches. Uh, and so while there are no images of that from Hamilton or from Ontario, I'm showing here uh, images from the United States um, during the civil rights era, just as a way to show a visual of what this experience would have been like for black children to be relegated to separate seating um, during their educational experience. Continuing on into um, going back into Essex County in Amherstburg, um, this was another area where racially segregated schools were formed. And these schools were particularly common in areas that were increasingly high density black settlement areas, places that attracted a lot of freedom seekers um, coming into the province. And Amherstburg was one of those areas. Um, in Amherstburg, there was a lot of strong opposition um, from community members, but particularly from school leadership, from the trustees and those in, who, who were in charge of operating the this public school system. Um, they were strong opposition to integrating black children and white children. And uh, so at this particular time, there was a, a missionary by the name of Isaac Rice, who was in the area and he documented um, the experiences of freedom seekers and their settlement in the region. And as it relates to schooling uh, and his documentation, we see from this very strong quote um, that it says that local white trustees and parents, you know, were in strong opposition to, um, to school integration and that they would rather cut off their children's head rather than to have them sit in the same spaces with black children. The schools in Amherstburg remained segregated going well into the turn, near the turn of the century. Um, here is a picture of um, the a school in Amherstburg in the 1890s. Um, this is the King Street School and the teacher at the very back right by the door, uh, John Alexander, this was the, um, the black schools, if you so to speak, um, for Amherstburg during this time period. London, Ontario was also a place where schools were racially segregated. In 1847, um, 
there's again similar to what was happening in Hamilton. Black people expressed that they were paying their taxes that were going towards public schools. However, they were being denied access to public schools. And it was noted that if any colored children enters a school, the white children are withdrawn. The teachers are painfully obliged to decline the black children and the colored people are forced to yield to an injustice that they are too weak to redress. And so, you know, the weakness speaking to the lack of power and the lack of support in order to intervene in this uh, racist practice. So in response in London, one response uh, similar to the, uh, Niagara on the Lake was that this, uh, the church, one of the local churches um, began a mission school to serve black children. And this is an image of um, some of the children, the local black children who attended the school, the church, uh, the colonial church and school society. Um, the school was housed at the military barracks in London. And in the middle is the teacher, Jemima Williams. Uh, and this was run under Reverend Marmaduke Dillon of uh, St. Paul's Anglican Church. And so politicians and school leaders um, were proponents of racially segregated schools, but they were also representative, um, representing constituents who wanted racially segregated schools. And so although at the beginnings of public education, um, it was noted that, you know, similar to, to British law, that there would not be discrimination based on race, color, creed, um, that in fact, the practice was so strong um, coming out of the 1840s, um, as I showed you, that the practice um, then informed the change in law in the Common Schools Act, what we would now call the Education Act. And so, um, you know, not only the school leaders, but politicians as well. Um, for example, in 1848, um, one of the politicians sent a recommendation to Egerton Ryerson, who was the chief superintendent of education, um, to allow for separate racial schools. There was a politician in Kent County by the name of MP uh, Malcolm Cameron, who proposed a bill um, allowing for racially segregated schools. Uh, and so it, I'm sure that these contributed to the changes that took place in the Common Schools Act in 1850. Um, and there are a couple of wonder, wonderful articles that uh, really summarize um, uh, you know, what happened in regards to these legislations. But essentially what happened in 1850 was that the act was revised to include a clause on separate schools. And, and it was intended to give Catholic families and black families, black communities, the choice in order to open a school to serve their needs. Again, as a way to alleviate the pressures and the challenges um, and the strong opposition to racially integrated schools in some of these areas. However, what wound up happening was that the school officials, the trustees um, and the local superintendents then use this particular clause to accommodate the racist practice of racially segregated schools. And they created schools oftentimes um, for the majority of times for the black community. And then when these schools were then open, 
Black families were then forced to attend if they wanted access to public education. So education leadership, um, as we see based on what I mentioned, um, that they conceded to the racist views of, um, the, of uh, white Ontarians at that time. Um, Ryerson, he was, as I said, the chief superintendent of education from 1844, um, and that position he held for 32 years. And at some point, uh, Ryerson does express that he felt that there was nothing that he could do to stop um, you know, the proliferation of racially segregated schools and in essence conceded to, to the practice. So in 1852, a parent um, and landowner by the name of Dennis Hill, uh, who resided in Don Mills, which is um, near to the Dresden area today. Uh, he wrote a letter to um, Egerton Ryerson. And in his letter, again, he's saying that he's one of the largest uh, landowners in the area with a lot of cultivated land, however, and he's paying taxes. However, once again, um, he's not able to access the school closest to him. Um, and so this is something that he was seeking redress from the chief superintendent of education. So he, Dennis Hill, um, not receiving a favorable response, filed a lawsuit. However, the courts ruled that once a Negro school was established, that it was compulsory for black, for, um, for black children to attend that designated school. Segregated schools also um, existed in the jurisdiction of St. Catharines. And we learn a little bit about this through another court case, um, the case of Hutchison versus uh, St. Catharines uh, Board of Education in 1871, or against the municipality. And um, so they had established several uh, colored schools, as they would call them, um, in advance of and with art regards for um, the previous Common Schools Act that said that there would be no discrimination. And so the Hutchison family wanted their son Richard to attend uh, the local school. Uh, and of course, through this court case, um, one of the, the challenges to the court case was that um, they used overcrowding and insufficient accommodation to deny black children access to the um, common schools, uh, white dominant common schools that were located close to them. Um, and what they argued was that the overcrowding that would result from black children attending the white schools was that this overcrowding would endanger the health of white children. They also use the support of a local superintendent who was also a doctor and this doctor stated in his affidavit that um, he was compelling the trustees um, not to admit the colored children of the town into the schools um, because it would, it would be result in um, cases of concern around sanitation. And this is 1871. And so this again was ruled in the favor of the jurisdiction to maintain racially segregated schools 
in St. Catharines. Uh, almost a decade later in Windsor, uh, James L. Dunn, um, a very well-known uh, citizen in Windsor, um, he filed a court case for his daughter to attend the new high school. The new high school opened and it was opened only for white children and uh, black children were still expected to attend the one room uh, schoolhouse that was designated for them at this time. And so Mr. Dunn filed a lawsuit uh, and some of the responses we see here in this quote, it says some of the trustees were shocked at the idea of having their kids sitting beside colored children. And the article noted that Mr. Dunn is going to take legal action in the matter and that trustee Archibald McKellar has referred to the question of whether a child can be excluded from school on account of color to the Minister of Education. There were only four colored schools in Ontario by this time in 1883, the one that remained at Windsor, the, there was a one in Amherstburg that I showed you, there was a school in Dresden, and the school, a racially segregated school in Chatham. And so Mr. Dunn did um, lose his case, they ruled against him. However, a mere few years later, he did run um, for trustee in uh, the school board and he did serve in that regard and that country helped to contribute to the desegregation of um, schooling in Windsor. And so again, in response, to segregated schools in Windsor, we get, a um, we get a response from the church. And um, here in Windsor, there's Reverend Wagner, who was um, the minister at St. Alphonsus Church in Windsor. He decides that he wants to open a mission school um, to serve black children, again, in response to, and as an alternative, to the racially segregated school, public school in, um, in Windsor. And so because he, this was not his area uh, of expertise, he reached out to the religious hospitals of St. Joseph in Quebec and asked if they could come and run the school. And they said that they would agree provided that they could partner to open a hospital, which became Hotel Dieu, um, the hospital in, in Windsor became the first uh, hospital there. And so some of the nuns came and helped to operate the school and orphanage. Um, however, we see here, so we see a, a, a picture here of the children who attended the schools. And then the quote that I've shared here with you is from some of the record keeping um, related to the mission school that captures some of the thoughts of of the time of the nuns, but also the sentiment of the time as well as it relates to black children in education. The head nun who wrote the report says that the boys who are the rejects of the other children of their race seem to only have an interest for wrongdoing and disobedience. The girls, according to their appearance, are not worth much more. And so again, I'll touch on that later to talk about you know, some of the continuities of these ideas that are entrenched in public education. The picture that was shared for the flyer for this event was a school picture taken in Colchester um, in 18, 
88. And this is such a stark picture, if you can imagine, um, what the climate would have been like for Black children attending um, this school, but also um, other racially segregated schools in the province at the time. And we will return to Colchester soon because you note that I opened up with a map in 1842. Here we see 44, 46 years later that racially segregated schools are still persisting um, in Colchester in 1888. Uh, and so again, you know, looking at how this may have played out for these children that while they may have been allowed in the building at the same time, that it was likely that they would have been relegated to separate benches um, or a, a different schedule in the school space. So one of the politicians who wanted to uh, legalize racially segregated schools, as I mentioned, was from Kent County. And um, Buxton was, is, was and is in this particular jurisdiction. So Buxton um, is a little unique in that the school came about because it was part of the Elgin settlement. It was a planned community for freedom seekers started by Reverend William King. And, um, and so William King, when he went to get the approval from um, the municipality in order to open the settlement, one of the things that he wanted to do as well was to open a school. And so the local leadership and school leaders did not want the black children attending the local public schools. And so they create, they formed and they established their own school, um, Buxton School Section 13. And what is interesting here is that the community thrived, the settlers built their homesteads, you know, built a thriving community businesses, professionals and everything. And the school was, um, became known as a top-notch school um, for black children, but also in the area. Um, Wilson Abbott, whose son was Anderson um, Abbott, the first Canadian born black doctor actually moved to Buxton for some time so that his son could attend school there um, just before he went on to medical school. And the schools, the quality and the caliber of the instruction um, was so high, the students tested really well and so much so that some of the white families wanted to send their children to this school as well. And so here we see that, um, again, the Buxton School, the school is still standing as part of the Buxton Museum and Heritage Site, if you've ever been there. Um, and in this picture, we will see this teacher in the center, Mr. George Cromwell. So just up the road in Chatham in 18, the same time period in the 1880s, um, again, as was noted in the article from the Windsor case, that segregated, racially segregated schools continued in the Chatham area. Um, so going back all the way to 1852, Black citizens of Chatham wrote to the superintendent of education, again, um, Egerton Ryerson. And here in this letter, they again iterate the common, you know, the common words that they are paying their taxes, but yet and still their children cannot um, access 
the school in any way, not even a room. Um, they said that there's absolutely no provisions made for our children. Um, and so their children, some of their children were not receiving an education. Um, and so again, they asked for intervention, but obviously we see here in 1891 that there was no um, remediation for these families in Chatham. And so in 1891, the community formed the Kent County Civil Rights League, and it was formed to seek redress in several areas in which the Black community of Chatham faced anti-Black discrimination. The first issue that they decided to tackle was the segregated school system. So on August the 3rd, 1891, the day that they were marking annual Emancipation Day commemorations, the KCCRL went public in Chatham and they used this meeting as they, they used this commemoration as the first meeting of the organization. And they would go on to meet the first Friday of every month. They would collect subscriptions that day on Emancipation Day and also throughout the course of their operations. So this day it was decided that they were not going to have a celebratory Emancipation Day, no parade. They were going to sit down, talk about the issues and strategize their steps for pushing this forward in order to have this addressed once and for all. And so the invited speakers spoke to, about, you know, spoke to these strategies, to the concerns, to their rights as um, subjects and citizens. And so, you know, they also launched a fundraising campaign to launch a court case. Um, they wrote petitions, um, other things that they did, they filed complaint to the trustees and they even staged action. And what they would do was that parents would decide to bring their children to the public schools um, to, in order to have them admitted. And of course they would be turned away and they would do this repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. And so after two years, their campaign resulted in the desegregation of schools in Chatham. And so, you know, at this again, another element, um, you know, is looking at the organizing of black parents in seeking redress from the Ministry of Education. So one question that I often get asked when I speak about segregated schools is what about Toronto? And so Toronto was a little unique in that Toronto schools were, were the student body were integrated. However, since public education started in Toronto, there were no black teachers until 1952 when Wilson Brooks was hired. Um, and black people have resided in Toronto since the 1790s. Um, and so here is Wilson Brooks, who was hired in 18, and I, sorry, I keep saying 18, in 1952. And it was something uh, that received quite a bit of attention and was published in um, Jet Magazine, a popular uh, African-American magazine at the time. Uh, Mr. Brooks would also go on to be um, the first black principal uh, in Toronto. 
Um, and he was one of the founders of the Ontario Black History uh, Society as well. And so racial segregation and racial exclusion was not just limited to um, Black students, but there was also an element of racial segregation and exclusion in employment for Black teachers. So segregated schools, as I mentioned, they looked differently um, in different places. Uh, ranging from separate school buildings, um, being relegated, students being relegated to separate seating. Um, what's worth noting is that in these black majority, these racially segregated schools, the teachers were primarily black. Um, and these teachers were able to produce amazing results in underfunded, undersourced schools. And as I mentioned, Toronto schools were integrated, the student bodies, but black teachers um, were just hired in the, 19, um, in the 1950s. But racial um, segregation and exclusion extended beyond um, public element, um, education at the elementary and secondary level. It also went on to professional training and post-secondary education. Um, in this particular case, nursing programs became increasingly popular in the uh, late 1930s um, after the war and going into the 1940s. However, um, black people were excluded from registering into nursing programs here in Ontario. And what wound up happening was a number of uh, young women wishing to pursue nursing would go to the United States where they could at least attend, um, you know, black universities and black uh, facilities to train and to practice. Uh, and so in one particular case, um, the case of Marie Scott, she born and raised in Owen Sound. And upon graduating high school, went to the hospital to apply for the nursing school and was turned away. And, um, and so the community helped to rally around her. And um, there was a minister, a white pastor, I believe of an Anglican church who helped um, to intervene, made a connection to the nursing school in Guelph and the school in Guelph, um, they wound up ex offering her a spot. And, um, and so at 17 years old, she had to move away um, to attend school in Guelph. And as we see here from the images that um, by 1950 and about four years later that Marie Scott graduated from the nursing program. And she would go on to practice for a, as a nurse for a bit, but um, as she became more credentialized, she was not able to move up in promoting the promotions and would go on to move um, in order to become a nurse in the, uh, a registered nurse, a public health nurse in, um, in the Caribbean. And it's interesting because I believe at the Guelph Museum or somewhere today actually tweeted a post about Marie Scott today. So her story remains relevant. Um, and then another example as it relates to post-secondary education is that the medical um, schools, um, they were limiting or denying um, black admission to medical programs. Uh, so when we look at, for example, Queen's University, U of T um, in um, McGill University, these places were, had these practices. 
And in the records of U of T Medical School, um, this is a particular note uh, from an application of an uh, African-American woman who registered for the medical school and was actually offered a, a spot until it was realized that she was black. And so the Dean of Medicine to the registrar said, when she, um, Mrs. Lean wrote for an application, we did not realize she was colored. Colored students are a problem when they get to the hospital and we would be glad if you could avoid accepting her application. And I point this out um, because for me, I see deep connections to the past and to the present. Uh, and while Miss Lean was um, African-American and applying from the outside into an Ontario school, um, when we look at the, the, the student demographics of, of medical programs, in Ontario or in Canada, um, the numbers of black students are low. And in, without looking at that critically, people would assume that maybe black students are not interested or um, you know, whatever the case may be without looking at the systemic barriers that have caused the, 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 the low representation of black students in these programs. A few years ago, UFT noted, a student noted that she was one of about 250 students entering the medical program at UFT. Um, again, not for you know, lack of interest, um, but the UFT did respond um, by taking some tailored steps in order to support and recruit um, black students. But not only that, this also connects to elementary and high school in terms of, you know, how um, the data shows that black students are disproportionately streamed away from academic courses and academic courses lead to university and the opportunities to pursue degrees such as in medicine. So the comments, the, the, um, the change to the Common School Act that I shared with you in 1850 remained on the books in Ontario, became part of the Education Act until 1964. In 1964, Leonard Braithwaite, the first black MPP put forth a motion for the provincial government to repeal that section that allowed for racially segregated schools. And what happened here was there was again, um, persistent parent advocacy coming out of Colchester. If you recall that I said I would get back to that. In Colchester, like Windsor, what happened was they built a brand new high school and the black children, both elementary and high school were being forced to remain in one building while the bus was passing the school and taking white children to the new high school. And so the community really mobilized around this effort. And as soon as Mr. Braithwaite was um, elected, um, they reached out to him and he put forth this motion. And so finally it resulted in the removal of this clause and the closure of that same school I just mentioned in Colchester in 1965. Understanding the history of segregated schools um, helps us to understand several things. One of the key things I wanted to point out is the persistent, consistent, unwavering advocacy of Black parents from 1840s straight through to August 2020. 
um, black parents and black community members have challenged segregated schools in a number of ways. They refuse to send their children to racially segregated public, public schools. The black community created alternative learning spaces such as Sunday school, um, the mission schools. There were private school groups that were formed by teachers such as Mary Bibb and Marianne Shad Carey. Um, black parents staged action for admission. Black parents also took their fight to courts, suing school trustees, school boards in their efforts to have common schools desegregated and for black separate schools to receive equal funding. Between 1850 and 1885, at least six lawsuits were launched by black parents. In all but one case, the practice of excluding black children from public schools was upheld by the courts of the province, the Superior Court of Ontario. The court ruling in favor of only one black family is demonstrative of how entrenched and acceptable racism in education was. This quote, I put you know, parallel to a picture of action that happened in August 3rd, um, marching to Queens Park. And in 1843, black parents said, all I want is justice and I will be satisfied. There's a documentary called The Little Black Schoolhouse produced by Sylvia William that takes a close look at the existence and realities of um, segregated schools across Canada. And so I, I encourage you to take a look at that if you can, it's available on Vimeo. And so, there are many connections, as I said, to the past and the present as I um, begin to close. Uh, we see and I see this map playing out um, in the 21st century today in many ways. It is evident in the way that Black children are disproportionately streamed into special education. Um, meanwhile, white students are overrepresented in gifted special education we see that black students are, have less access to arts and specialized programs, that black students have disproportionate outcomes. Um, and again, I had mentioned academic streaming, so being streamed away from academic university level courses, um, which we know results in disproportionate outcomes for black students. What's also evident in looking at this history, this 180 year history, is that um, we see how trustees have interacted with black parents and how they have responded to complaints of anti-black racism um, from black communities. And that is something that we continue to see um, play out today. And so 180 years of systemic racism, anti-Blackness in public education um, is important for us to understand. We see how anti-Blackness is entrenched in public education and we have to be able to name it and identify it to see how it's morphed and evolved into what we continue to fight against um, today. What it also illustrates for me is that there is an educational debt that is owed to Black communities, to Black children, and to Black families who have paid taxes into a system that they did not benefit from. 
Um, and so, you know, this is something that I wanted to leave with you today as, uh, as I wrap up um, my talk and have time for uh, a few questions. Um, I also wanted to encourage you, as I said, to continue to learn more about um, this history and the rich and varied history of Black Canadians past and present in Ontario. Um, the Ontario Black History Society, we have and share a wealth of resources. So I encourage you to visit our website, to follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram for our ongoing programming resources, um, again, in order to help build your awareness um, for educators to share in their classrooms or for students to use in their, um, their learning as well. So thank you. Hi everyone, it's Adrian again. We really hope you enjoyed the lecture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us via our social media channels or at museum at stcatherines.ca. More lectures are headed your way this winter, so don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find us under St. Catherine's Museum. For details and to register for the series, please visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca. If you enjoy the lectures, why not consider making a donation to the museum? Your donations help us to continue to provide the high quality and enjoyable programming that you have come to expect from us. We really appreciate any donation you're able to make. Visit our website, stcatherinesmuseum.ca, or give us a call at 905-984-8880 during our operating hours to make a donation. Your donation makes a difference. Next time on VMLS via podcast, Lost and Forgotten, The Third Welling Canal, presented by me. Thanks for listening. The Virtual Museum Lecture Series is presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Wellington Canal Centre.